I'm Richard Blanco. And uh, you're a poet. <laughs> I'm Richard Blanco. I'm a poet, a civil engineer, uh, among other things. And uh, or, or do you, you really want a formal introduction? No, like, I like that. Uh, okay. That's good. <laughs> okay. For the next 25 minutes or so, you'll hear about how Richard Blanco became a poet, the poet who was chosen to write the poem for President Obama's second inauguration a few years ago. We're going to go deep into the mind of Richard Blanco, into the memories that shape his poems and the people and experiences that inspire him. He grew up in Miami, the son of Cuban exiles, and you'll hear about how that shaped him too. From WLRN in Miami, I'm Alicia Zuckerman, and this is Spark, a podcast about imagination. And just a quick warning, this interview contains some sensitive information about Santa Claus. All right. So, um, so Richard, what was the first creative act that you can remember? I was obsessed with Legos. I mean, I had to have a new set of Legos every Christmas. And I even f- faked that I hadn't found out the truth about Santa Claus just because I knew where the presents were hidden. And I would look at that Lego set every day for weeks. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, and and the old Legos where you actually had to use your imagination, not the ones now that come like, oh, this is what you build. It's just like pure imagination, pure flow. And I would make everything from, you know, cars, houses to record players to cigarette boxes. <laughs> so, cigarette but, boxes. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Do you remember about how old you were when you first started playing with Legos? Must have been like around six or seven. I mean, as far back as I can remember being cognizant of creativity. I mean, other than that, sort of dancing around like a fool oh, <laughs> or things like that. Um, maybe this is really the first creative act now that I think about it. I had this blanket called my Nina. <laughs> and so uh, I remember, I remember there's told me stories. I would just dance with the blanket and do sort of like a just zany and whatnot um, until... My grandmother started telling me not to act like a sissy. So, <laughs> right, and you tell that story in your memoir. Right. Did you, did you feel that that actually tamped down on your creativity or your kind of desire to be creative? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, I think I, I, I've always been a left brain, right brain child since I was a kid. So you can see why Legos sort of satisfied both sides of the brain. It's very technical, but it's also very creative. So I loved math. I I loved you know, English. I loved biology, everything. And even the standardized tests that I would take later on as an adult, I score exactly the same on the verbal and the analytical to the number. And my grandmother certainly, you know, I think I mean, my grandmother being sort of the epitome of it. But, but in general, like creative arts for boys are not usually encouraged. And there's this idea like, oh, he's painting. What is that all about? You should be going outside and playing baseball with the kids or something like that. So that did contribute to it, but it wasn't like sort of I was completely drawn just to the arts and was squelched all the time. So, um, and when it came time to decide a major, I went with the path of least resistance, which I also loved. I mean, it was math and and science. Um, going back to when you were, say, in elementary school, like what were your favorite classes then? You know, I really had very little exposure to the arts. We were in a small um, St. Brendan's Parish, which was... I think just had started, so it was kind of a poor parish, and that was a, that's a private Catholic, Catholic yeah, school. parochial school. Yeah, we got like art once a month and music like once a month, and it was, I was sort of very arts arts hungry. But I do remember sort of having that sort of creative sense of just losing myself in space and time, and just being at something for hours and hours, and just sort of the same feeling I have as an adult when I sit down to write a poem or or a chapter in a book. 
I remember that since a very early child, and I remember that escape, that, that, that magic world where you can enter through the creative mind. What, what did your parents do for a living? Well, it's complicated because there's like before Cuba and after Cuba. <laughs> so right, of course, yeah. My dad was actually a naval cadet uh, in Cuba in the Cuban Navy and was studying to be a port pilot, um, mm. which I have a poem about because I, I didn't find that out until much later in life. And for those who don't know who a port pilot is, it's if you've ever gone on a cruise, that little boat that comes alongside. But um, since the revolution and, and all that, um, he ended up learning bookkeeping and accounting by trade and worked at the sugar mill town and worked in the office. There's a whole poem about all the things he went through. One, one time he was a butcher at my uncle's grocery store. And then my mother was a school teacher. My mother was the youngest of eight children, the only one that was able to study. And the story goes that my parents met because my mother would hitch rides to the university. <laughs> and my, my father would always offer her a ride and she would f- refuse and refuse. And finally one day she accepted and because she wanted to marry a tall man and my dad was five foot five. So, <laughs> so <laughs> she became a school teacher. And then here, because of the change in language, she actually ended up working at a bank for god knows how many years probably like 40 plus years just retired actually this year um so she became a numbers person as well (laughs) so now that i'm thinking about it i'm seeing where the left brain stuff comes from (laughs) did she talk about missing teaching no you know she's told me that it's funny because the only thing I ever really wanted to be was an architect. And of course, we, I couldn't study architecture because we couldn't afford it. You know, later on as an adult, we had conversations that she said, you know, I, I wanted to study teaching like anything in the world. And I was convinced I was going to be the best teacher in the world and whatnot. And she said that when she started working in the bank that she realized that she wasn't such a good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and that she really wow. loves accounting and numbers and stuff like that. And And I have sat down with my mother and I hope she's not listening, but... Sometimes even when I try to um, ask her some things about how do you spell this in Spanish or something about Spanish, she's not very patient. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, to really flash forward, way forward, at 42, I decided after my second book of poetry and awards and all, et cetera, et cetera, I wasn't really a poet. That was just a fluke. I'm really an architect. And then FIU had a master's in architecture program, and I put a portfolio together, and I was accepted. And I thought, this is it. You know, this is really the story of my life. And um, I lasted three weeks. <laughs> but I felt exactly like my mother had said, that I thought it was going to be like this great archetype. And it kind of didn't come naturally at all. Um, I found that there was some, at least in my brain, a better correlation between engineering and poetry than poetry and architecture. It was this weird sort of aha moment in, in the way at least I'm wired. I found uh, architecture to be too abstract, even though people would claim that poetry is abstract, but in reality, poetry is about making concrete those abstract notions that we have of love and fear and hate and betrayal and joy. And I found that that process for me of making the abstract concrete is kind of the same thing I do in engineering. That definitely sounds like a different approach to poetry than what we often hear. Yeah, I mean, you know, they for years I remained, you know, engineer by day, poet by night, but now if I've had enough time to sit with my work in both, and I do love them both, the idea of how we tend to separate and categorize and stereotype all sort of human endeavors. And in reality, so much of poetry is about finding structure and rhythm, um, just like music it's both. You need the left brain, especially during editing, to see how pieces of logic fit together. But of course, there's a whole right brain side, which usually happens at the beginning of a poem, that sort of explosion of 
of imagery and feeling and content that then you start shaping and carving and designing. You start designing a poem. And, and in many ways, I approach the poem as I do a problem in engineering. It's a design problem for me. What was the first poem that you wrote that you remember? I do remember the first moments that have ingrained some sense of understanding in me of what a poem is. I was getting dressed for work to go to my engineering office, and across the street, I just saw a woman dressed in red pumps sort of scurrying up up and down the staircase. It was one of those exterior staircases. And, and I just remember that imagining this whole person's life and moment just you know, scuttling down those stairs and what was going on through her mind when I wrote some really bad poem called Red Pumps or something like that. <laughs> but I remember writing one about a spider. And every morning, the spider would build his spider web from the hedge to my car door. And every morning, I'd tear down this, this spider web. And the next morning, there was the spider web again. And I just wrote this sort of poem about the spider, which I guess was some kind of some kind of metaphor for the futility of life or something of that how we, despite everything's destroyed, we keep on building and building and building. So those were earlier moments when I started sort of understanding a poetic sensibility. What made you think that you could be a poet? You know, I never wanted to be a poet, and I think that's why I became a poet. Um, to go back to engineering, again, left brain, right brain. Shortly after I started working in, in my firm that I ended up working with for over 20 years on and off, a lot of my job was writing proposals, letters, studies, writing verbal communication skills. And I sort of started really falling in love with language and seeing that, again, that language was designed, that there was there was purpose and intent and persuasion and all this stuff. And so from then on, then that's when my right brain sort of clicked on and said, hey, what else can we do with this writing stuff that seems kind of neat? I was like, what's the way? I've done the most sort of, sort of concrete, you know, male macho thing I can do is like be an engineer, right? And build stuff and concrete. And I've, I've always been curious about poetry, but never have had really a complete grasp of it. And I just started becoming more serious, but never with any expectation. I was just doing it for pure fun to let my, my other half of me sort of play. But literally I was like, I wasn't an engineer. I don't care. Like, it was just like, this is fun and creative and I'm just getting and and then the practical sort of immigrant ethic of well if I'm going to do this I might as well get a degree in it right <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so who was the first person who told you that your poetry was good there was a girl this is before I even came out there was a girl I was I was, I was sort of dating like for a month or whatnot and she was older than me and she was uh she was a pharmacologist but also had studied English as an undergraduate and I showed her one of my there's another poem I wrote called The Ships She Sails, which was this horrible sort of metaphor of how a ship and the generations and la, 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 la. And I shared it with her because she was an English major. I've never been afraid to share my work. That's the other thing which I think helped. And she said, you know, you're writing an iambic pentameter. And I'm like, what's that? Huh. <laughs> it's you just happened upon I it. Just, I have to thank her because that little phrase, like, these aren't that bad. And then the real influence ultimately was um, a girlfriend after that, uh, she said, you know, these, these are pretty good. You know, have you ever thought about getting an MFA? And I said, what's an MFA? And so she really set me on the path. She gave me, um, this beautiful memory. Um, she gave me the Norton anthology of modern poetry. And I thought, what's this, a, a doorstop? Who the hell is going to read this thing? <laughs> and but I remember this is really the moment that I fell in love with poetry, that I knew that I wanted to do this the rest of my life. 
I was sitting in the Florida room watching my mother in the kitchen and I'm paging through the anthology and I happen upon William Carlos Williams section. And of course, I see the short little poem, so I naturally read it because I think maybe I'll understand this one. And it was, of course, the red wheelbarrow. And I just remember that day as if like the clouds parted and I just was reading so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow and then watching my mother in the kitchen in the same sort of apron, the same slicing onions and pimientos, the same way she had always done it with the, such beauty and simplicity. And I understood so much depends on, you know, this, the smallest of things in our lives, which is what the poem is sort of a lot about. And I said, oh, that's what poetry is. It's about finding the extraordinary in the most seemingly ordinary moments of our life that can just pass us in a nanosecond. But they're all those moments that make life worth living. Blanco did apply for an MFA program at Florida International University, and the first time, he got rejected. And another little small moment, which I must give a shout out to Gloria Stefan, <laughs> was <laughs> when I did get rejected. And I thought about, I remember as a kid, when Gloria Stefan would play like the quinces and proms and stuff. This Miami Sound Machine was playing, and, you know, just a sort of a local sort of band. And I just thought in my heart, what if she would have given up? Hmm. You know, look at how much she ended up putting our culture on the map and our people and our com exile community and all the rest. And, and the I thought, Cuban, the Cuban community. Yeah, the Cuban community. And oh, well, even just Miami and, you know, the flavor of Miami and just sort of, yeah, you know, true. and I thought, she didn't give up and I'm not going to give up either. I actually got to meet her not long ago, uh, literally like a few months ago for the first time ever. And I was just like crying like a baby. And I finally got to tell her that story. So if you're out there, Gloria, saying it publicly now for everybody. I'm so glad because I, I, that was going to be my next question was, you know, did you ever get to tell her that story? So yeah, yeah. I'm glad you did. Your, your father didn't live to see you become a poet. Is that right? No. How, how old were you when he died? I think I was 22 or 23. So what did your mother think of you delving into the world of poetry? Well, my mother would always say, yeah, but he's an engineer. And um, the only significant conversation that I had with her once was I took a hiatus from engineering for a while and started teaching creative writing up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And um, I think there was a little bit of tension around that. And I said, listen, the apostle of Cuba, as you call him, was a poet. The man that changed <laughs> history of your country was a poet. <laughs> so give me a little respect. Then. And you're She's talking like, about Marti. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, sorry about Jose Marti, El Apostle, you know, um, and what, what words can do and how words can change the world. And, and, and she knows verses by Marti and, you know, as every Cuban does. So I think I just had to turn the cultural tables around and say, that's what I'm doing, Mom. And she's, I think then she got it. And of course, with the inauguration and everything, I feel like telling her, I told you so. <laughs> you would have pretty good grounds to do that, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm curious about, if you can sort of take me through the circumstances of a specific poem that you feel like, okay, this poem worked, you know? I'll give you a very odd and bizarre one that ended up being not an odd and bizarre poem, in some ways the creative process is very similar for every poem it's this initial sort of phase of just entering the mystery the poem is about the discovery 
you know, you want to be a football player, you learn the rules of the game, you learn how to hold the football, you learn how to throw the football. The magic part of almost every human endeavor is is the mysterious part that we can't always control and allowing yourself a certain uh, bowing before the, the, the gods of creativity, before the muse and saying, I know nothing. To me, that's the most critical part of the writing process. So uh, this is a poem from uh, the first book, City of Hundred Fires. It's a pretty old poem. Um, and I remember watching The Accidental Tourist. And William Hurt, I think, was in that movie. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. And there was this moment where he's shaving in the morning and he, and he fills his beard up with, uh, with foam. And then he takes his thumb across his lips like that. And he just clears his lips and he looks at himself in the mirror. That image obsessed me for years. <laughs> I don't know why. And then I started thinking about my masculinity um, in relation to my grandmother and what that really meant. Um, and I started thinking about my beard and I started thinking about that. I've always wanted to have a full beard like my dad, but I can, I can barely grow. I shave like twice a week maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so this poem is in some ways also an Ars Poetica because it talks about it, it writing itself. And I think it might be a good example of sort of what's the line between the creative process and the finished product, and they're not always that clean cut. So as the first line even says here, shaving. I'm not shaving. I'm writing about it. And I conjure the most elaborate idea, how my beard is a creation of silent labor, like ocean steam rising to form clouds, or the bloom of spider webs each morning. The discreet mystery of how whiskers grow, like the drink roses take from the vase, or the fall of fresh rain becoming a river, and then rain again, so silently. I think of all these slow and silent forces, and how quietly my father's life passed us by. I think of those mornings when I am shaving, and remember him in a masquerade of foam, then as if it was his beard I took the blade to, the memory of him in tiny snips of black whiskers swirling in the drain, dead pieces of the self from the face that never taught me how to shave, his legacy of whiskers that grow like black seeds sown over my cheek and chin, my own flesh. I'm not shaving but I will tell you about the mornings with a beard and the blade in my hand when my eyes don't recognize themselves in a mirror echoed with a hundred faces I have washed and shaved. It is in that split second when perhaps the roses drink and the clouds form, when perhaps the spider spins and rain transforms that I most understand the invisibility of life and the intensity of vanishing, like steam at the slick edges of the mirror, without a single trace. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, you see, the spiders I, are back. The, yeah, <laughs> are was, back in there. Right I just there. realized as I read that that image continued to obsess me. The poem is a lot about your father. It evokes a lot of images about your father, who you lost really pretty young, I mean, in your early 20s. Right. Um, so was, is part of that poem to you 
recreating your dad and trying to hold on to images of him? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that a lot of the a lot of that's how my father appears a lot in my poetry, um, because I never had to got to have an adult relationship with him per se, and because he was, in many ways, very emotionally absent. Um, I I've used poetry to sort of gather these little moments from that I remember from his life and sort of reconstruct and imagine um, my connection to him in this sort of alternate universe in some ways, and or speak through him through time and space through poetry back to what that relationship might have been like or to tell him what those quiet moments meant of me seeing him shave, you know. So uh, in many ways, you get that exactly right. Um, it Poetry is a lot, again, in terms of knowing what's sort of unknowable. And so another great artist friend of mine, um, Carlos Betancourt, told me that to be an artist is to be part of something that does not exist yet. And it's... In, in the case of my father, it li- it's a literal not knowing, and you're just sort of fishing around in that pool of unknowing to find this little image or this little memory that you can sort of pin your heart to or something. Yeah, I lost my dad, like, uh, in my early 30s, but I still feel that way, like, we never really got to have an adult. Like, I feel like so much has happened in the last 10 years right. that kind of makes me me. So I do. I feel that way. I mean, I really totally relate to that, like, not just missing that whole big section of that relationship. Right, right. Since you are so evenly split, or you think of yourself as so evenly split between left brain and right brain, how do you push yourself into the right brain when you're sitting down to write a poem? Routine helps. You really need to let the left brain quiet down. How I do that is by exercising. What kind of exercise? Um, well... Like a good gay boy, I've been going to the gym since I was twelve, I think. But, but anything, you know, running, anything, just lift, anything that gets you back in your body. I think, in my case, I'm sorry to say, watching reruns of Brady Bunch and I'd Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie, like for a good hour, is enough. Friends, um, anything I love like friends. anything like that. <laughs> really, you need to sort of shut down and restart. Just taking the pressure off. And there's another weird thing that happens is with me is that I have this wonderful office in Maine, the house, and it's like this office, and I'm always constantly, I gotta redo the office, you know, I gotta like redo my books, and I have to, you know, buy oak furniture, and I have to, and I rarely write in my office. Like, I write at the, when the inauguration for the inaugural poem, first thing I did was take the laptop to the kitchen table. (laughs) I have to get away from that high pressure, like, situation, because, it's like, okay, I'm at my desk now. We're going to write a poem. And it's like, sometimes I just sprawl on the rug. I do little silly rituals. Like, I always try to remember to light a candle every time I sit down to write. And I just stare at the flame for five seconds or what, as long as you know I can, which is usually five seconds. But it's just about saying, stop, stop. Everything stop now. This is, we're entering, you know, church. <laughs> we're going to see God, you know. Of course, it's not always easy, and sometimes you just can't do it because you have too much going on. But it, it is part of the practice. And some things that, you know, we often don't talk about in creative writing workshops and things like that, it's more than just learning the rules. Again, it's how to manage your own psychology to get to that space. By the same token, usually by 5 o'clock, my left brain is pretty tired, and it's ready to go to bed. Um and then the right brain comes out and like plays. And when I was teaching, it became very methodical. I would detail everything, what page I had to read, you know, every single thing I would lay it out in a calendar and all this stuff. 
um, trying to exhaust my left brain, but it wasn't enough. And then I'd start doing like spreadsheets of, you know, when I changed the cat litter last, you know, just the, the left brain was like, I need to do something. And it started taking it out on the poetry as well, approaching the poem as this, as this, this formula. So my second book, I spent four years mapping out my book. It was going to be called something about bridge tongues or something about me being an engineer and crossing over into the land of poetry. I wrote like 20 poems and realized I was writing the poems that didn't belong in the master book, the brilliant book that I was going to, was going to top myself. Uh, and I threw all those poems away and realized that I had written this whole book about travel <laughs> and then I said and then I finished that off in about eight months instead of this master thing that I spent four years white knuckling what happened to those old poems that you spent all that time on? nothing at all I wrote I wrote like a 15 page poem on the Golden Gate Bridge because I found out that the chief structural engineer of uh, uh, Strauss of the Golden Gate Bridge was a poet and so that fascinated me and I it was just I approached it completely left brain there was no discovery and it was just sort of forced so you do all of this, you kind of split your brain. I know sometimes you just, you know, you have to sit down, like you have a deadline like you did for the inauguration and you really have no choice but to sit down and do it. But other times when you're uh, allowing yourself to not be worried about the fact that you're not writing and you're letting things sort of ferment, how do you know when you're ready? Like, how do you know when it's time to write? Does something happen? It's almost like this quiet backdoor thing you still have to sort of trick yourself even as much exercise as you do writing is one of the most terrifying things in the world any creative endeavor because you have very little control over the outcome uh, moment by moment I usually write at night but how do I get there I just I feel like there's there's finally that urgency that that image I can't contain that image or that obsession anymore or just a, a, a compelling urgency that is no longer is no longer viable just as loose or straight thoughts in your head that you have to now trust that you you're sort of become hungry for the poem to finally yield something to you and then sometimes not i mean sometimes it is a very practical move um for example now i'm doing a project with a photographer um jake hessler and i have an assignment which is welcome is welcome um and you go through a similar resistance and all that, but you know you have an assignment. You at least have a photograph. So a lot of it, a lot of creativity is about tricking yourself in a way. You know, it's funny we began with what is the moment that I first remember being creative, and it's really all about getting back to that child space in some ways. And I think when you feel like that child, I think it was Blake that said, you know, that the, the child is the perfect, the perfect artist. There's sort of this cutoff age right around fifth or sixth grade teaching poetry to like third fourth fifth it's just like it's like even better than teaching to graduate students i mean they just understand the, in a way that they can't even articulate but um i don't know you've made me think about you know it's it's still mind-boggling to me like where a poem comes from and yet i don't want to give the wrong or false impression that that art is not a discipline you can't always wait for the muse to come down from heaven but you invite the muse and you invite that by showing up one of the things that fascinates me about the whole creative process, and I think that that's ultimately what sort of keeps me writing and addicted to writing and coming back to creativity, is that when you follow the discipline of an art versus, I always used to tell this to my students in workshop, you know, sort of scribbling something in your journal or like, you know, just like toying around with poetry or whatever. It's kind of like taking a couple of shots at a 
at a at a party of tequila and you're on the dance floor and you're like whoa this is so awesome i'm just like you're having a great time maybe you're not such a bad dancer maybe you're horrible but you're having a great time that's there's a difference between that and signing up for ballet class and so there's an irony that the discipline allows you that space that you need you know, there's a reason why yin and yang exists. You know, there's a reason between heaven and hell. There's there's all these dichotomies in life. You know, the process mimics life itself. Imagine if you weren't Cuban American. I don't even, I can't even imagine that somehow. Um, if so much of what I thought about, if I wasn't, what would I... That's a stumper. Um, I keep on wanting to search for another ethnicity to name. I guess I guess one of my greatest fears, and I think what scares me about your question, is the idea of being anonymous, of having nothing. It scares the hell out of me. When you ask me that question, I just feel so lonely. I guess because that speaks to my obsession about home place identity and, and all those connections, I guess. Richard Blanco, thank you so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. This is a great, great conversation, a great topic. I'm glad you think so. (laughs) You've been listening to a conversation with the poet, engineer, and Cuban-American Richard Blanco. Spark is a podcast about imagination produced out of WLRN in Miami, Florida. To hear more, search WLRN Spark in your podcast app. Spark is a creation of Tom Hudson, Maria Muriel, and me, Alicia Zuckerman. 